Well, many of you know that I'm a Denver Broncos fan. I've been uh, cheering, it's a rough crowd, been cheering uh, on the Broncos uh, for as long as I can remember, through thick and thin, and as of late, there have been a lot uh, of really tough years. Uh, the last year that the Broncos won more games than they lost was 2016. They've had at least 14 starting quarterbacks and five head coaches since Peyton Manning retired. And now they find themselves back in quarterback purgatory with Russell Wilson presumably on his way out. But of course, I don't have to tell you this, you know that human beings are fickle. You really have two types of sports fans. You have those who are fans through thick and thin, and then you have those who become fans when it's fun and popular to be a fan. And fairly quickly then they move on to the next fun and popular team. And, and I get it, life is short. I really can't blame people who want to cheer for a winning team. But there are those two types of fans. There are a lot of people who have Peyton Manning jerseys from 2015 hanging in their closet who are now cheering for a different team. It's just the way that we are as human beings. What's at the front of our minds today likely won't be a year from today. Some of the things that you're passionate about right now, you will inevitably be tired of pretty soon. We have relatively short attention spans. We're generally drawn to the latest and the best. And that isn't just true of sports or entertainment or material things. It's also true spiritually. As the hymn so accurately describes our humanity, we are prone to wander. If you don't believe me, just read the Old Testament. Think about the Hebrew people. After watching God part the Red Sea and rescue them from Egypt, they arrive at Sinai. Moses is gone for a minute, and all of a sudden they're fashioning a golden calf to worship. It's just who we are. That's the sort of tendency that Paul is going to confront in our text today. He will express his surprise and dismay at how quickly the Christians in Galatia have deserted the gospel and have moved on to something else. Uh, in this passage, we find a serious warning. This is a, a pretty serious passage. The whole letter is pretty serious. But we also find in our passage today some amazing hope in the gospel. Galatians chapter 1, I will read verses 6 through 10. This is God's word to us. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. God, we are grateful for your word. 
We confess and we believe that it is inspired by you, that it is true, that it is the final authority for faith and life. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As I mentioned when we began uh, this series last Sunday, Paul sort of skips over his normal pleasantries as he begins this letter. Rather than an expression of his, of his deep affection for these believers, we find astonishment. He says, I am astonished, I'm amazed, I marvel that you are so quickly deserting. And just within the five verses that make up our text today, we will see Paul's astonishment, but also his passion and maybe even his anger over what is taking place in these churches. Today we'll identify four thoughts that I think might best convey the message of our text and that give us some insight into Paul's deep concern for these congregations. Uh, the first one is this, that to abandon the gospel is to abandon God himself. Look at verse 6 of our text. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Did you notice the wording? He says, I'm, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting. Deserting what? The focus isn't on the fact that these people are only abandoning the gospel, but that in doing so, they are actually abandoning the gospel giver, God himself. And here's what we see. We cannot separate our knowledge and our experience of God from the gospel. We cannot separate our knowledge or our experience of God from the gospel. I want to reiterate, in case you didn't catch last week's sermon, that the word gospel means good news. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Or as we heard last week, the gospel is the promise, the proclamation that Jesus gave himself for your sin to rescue you. That message, the reality of Christ as substitute for us, taking our sin and giving us his righteousness, is really the centerpiece of the Christian faith. Or we might say that, that this uh, message is the irreducible minimum. If we ask, what is Christianity? What is the Christian faith? We, we will get many responses. They'll be all over the place. But the irreducible minimum, the peace that can never be set aside, is the promise that Jesus took your place and has, in return, given you forgiveness and righteousness. And so I'll say it again. We cannot separate our knowledge and our experience of God from the gospel. If we walk away from the gospel, we walk away from God. If we move beyond the gospel, we move beyond God. To abandon the gospel is to abandon God himself. The grammar of this verse, of verse 6, tells us that, that the deserting, the abandoning, was happening presently. It hadn't fully taken place. It wasn't a matter of the past, but of the presence. And this helps us understand 
the urgency in Paul's writing. He's confronting a present theological emergency in these congregations. In helping us understand this, we also see Paul emphasize a couple of things that I want to point out to you. First, Paul emphasizes, and you might have noticed this when I read the text, he emphasizes the fact that God is the one who calls. He's reminding the reader that their faith is not merely an intellectual decision, that if you believe in Christ as your Savior, it's because God has called you. Not because you just decided to follow, decided to believe. Scripture teaches that we cannot believe in Jesus or come to him on our own, but that the Holy Spirit calls us through the gospel. Think about that. We are dead in our sins, apart from God's intervention. We are dead in our trespasses, in in our sins, but the Holy Spirit calls us through the gospel. The salvation of these Galatian believers, your salvation, my salvation, is not a product of our own will, our own intellect, our own spiritual hunger. The, The Holy Spirit calls us through the gospel. And these Christians are now deserting that very gospel message. That's like cutting out the heart from your own church. It's insanity. The second thing that we see emphasized here, as Paul is making this point, that to abandon the gospel is to abandon God himself, is this. That that God has called us to live in the grace of Christ. This is an important point. Or we might say it like this, that he has called us in and by his grace. Grace is the state, the context, the currency in which we come to know God. Grace isn't merely a one-time gift that we receive, but it is the very substance in which he comes to us and in which we are to live. That's why essentially every letter that you find in the scriptures contains this greeting which conveys God's grace. The emphasis here is on the fact that this new gospel that the false teachers in Galatia are teaching is a gospel that is actually anti-grace. It's the opposite of grace. It actually says that God's grace isn't enough. It's anti-grace, anti-Christ in every sense. And I would argue that it's not just these false teachers that Paul's confronting that that teach another gospel that's actually an anti-grace message, but that these messages are, are prevalent and common today in our world as well. You see, the gospel is not just intellectual. It's not just a matter of academic discovery and assent. And so when you reject the gospel, you are not rejecting a proposition. You're not rejecting a theory or an opinion or a set of ideas or beliefs. You're rejecting a person, the person of Jesus Christ. To abandon the gospel is to abandon God himself. The second thing that we see in our text is this, that if we add anything to the gospel, we lose the gospel. Verses 6 and 7 say this, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. The gospel of which Paul speaks is precise. It's not generic. 
It's not just another word for Christianity. The gospel is precise. It's the message that Jesus died for your sin in your place and has given you his righteousness as a gift. I shared with our men's Bible study this week that that so often we have sort of an incomplete understanding of salvation. We talk a lot about the forgiveness of sins, and and we should. The forgiveness of sins is is a big deal. But there is a part of our salvation, or we might say a part of our justification, being made right with God, that we don't always emphasize as we should. We can conceptualize the forgiveness of sins because we all, if we are honest, know that we are sinners. We feel it, that we don't live the sort of life that we ought to, that we are not perfect as Jesus has told us to be. But when the Bible talks about our salvation, it never just talks about forgiveness, but also being made right with God. We see this expressed, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We often refer to it as the great exchange. That Jesus becomes sin. He takes the sin of the world upon himself and in return gives us his righteousness. Jesus came not only to forgive our sin, but to make us righteous. And that righteousness is always a gift. It's not something that we manufacture on our own. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says, To the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited to them as righteousness. In other words, being saved, receiving and believing the gospel, isn't just about our sins being forgiven. We aren't just wiped clean. We aren't just made a clean slate. We are actually credited, gifted, given the very righteousness of Christ in all his perfection. By grace through faith, God does not simply see us as wiped clean of our sin, but as if we had always perfectly obeyed, as if we were never fallen sinners in the first place. That's the power of the gospel. So you might ask, what what does this have to do with adding to the gospel? Think about it this way. You can't add to something that is perfect and complete. And it's foolish to try, right? If you try to add to the gospel, you're implying that it isn't complete. That it isn't perfect. That it isn't enough. That it isn't sufficient. You're saying that what Christ has done for you wasn't quite good enough. And we'll discuss this in coming weeks, but there were false teachers in the churches in Galatia saying, yes, you you must believe in Jesus, but you must also follow the law of Moses in order to be saved. So in this case, it's Jesus plus the law of Moses, Jesus plus obedience, Jesus plus the rite of circumcision. And one thing that's important to recognize is that, and we'll talk about this again in a minute, 
that these false teachers, they weren't from another, they wouldn't have presented themselves at least, as part of another religion coming in to steal Christian believers. They would have seemed very much, they would have called themselves followers of Jesus. But don't believe for one moment that this was just a then problem. It's also a now problem. When we talk about adding to the gospel, your, your mind might drift to the time of the Reformation, for example. And rightfully so. The Reformers gave their lives working to uncover and unshackle the gospel from the teaching and tradition of the church in Rome that added uh, human works like penance and merit to the gospel. But again, it's not just a medieval church problem. I think that our text clues us into two things that we can watch for to identify false gospels in the modern church. We could have an entire sermon series on this. Maybe someday we will. But I think that if you, if you consider these two methods of twisting the gospel, two things to watch for, you'll, you'll have a heightened sense of, of awareness when it comes to false teachers who might be trying to deceive with a counterfeit gospel. One is sort of explicit, it's out there, it's obvious in Galatians. And one is a little bit more implicit, it's more implied from the very beginning of the letter. So two things we should watch for. We'll start with that which is clear, and then we'll talk about the implied in just a moment. First, be watching and listening for anything that elevates particular human actions, desires, and practices on par with faith in Christ as essential. So think about that. Be watching and listening for anything that elevates particular human actions, desires, or practices on par with faith in Jesus Christ as essential. These things are often stated as being, quote, essential for every Christian. Or sometimes it'll be more simply stated this way, any true Christian will, or any good Christian will, the language might vary, but you'll hear it. And now that I pointed out, you'll probably hear it and see it everywhere. Now, this doesn't mean that every time you hear language like that, that the person is adding to the gospel. For example, it would be right and good of me as your pastor to say that every Christian should or it is essential for every Christian to love their neighbor. I could say that and I should say that. That's not adding to the gospel. In saying that I'm not indicating that you'll be saved if you love your neighbor or that your salvation hangs on you loving your neighbor but you'll often hear people elevate whatever moral or ethical issue that they are passionate about to on par or nearly on par with faith in Christ as necessary. And what's particularly challenging is that by definition, these things sound holy and they sound good. Nobody is going to be deceived by a fake gospel that, for example, says we are saved by Jesus plus murdering kittens. Nobody's deceived by that, right? Nobody's deceived by a fake gospel that would say we are saved by Jesus plus being a racist. Maybe somebody would actually be deceived by that, but most people are not. It's not going to be that overt. But we might be deceived by, for example, something we might call 
a therapeutic gospel. This is a, a false gospel that actually places you at the center and Jesus is merely a, a pawn or a means to get you to your best life. It'll never be expressed in that way, right? The, the false teachers will never present it that clearly, even though that's what it is. But the result is always a faith that is practically about you. Jesus isn't our only hope. He is a therapist. He gets you to your best life. Another example of this is a moralistic gospel. This results from a view that your biggest problem is your individual sins and vices. No concern for your human nature or for your heart that is deceitful above all things, but the concerns are on the individual moral decisions that you make. But Jesus gives you a second chance to be a good person, to accomplish all that you want to accomplish in this life. And when you look beneath the surface, Jesus is almost always just the helper, the boost, the crutch that's needed to push you across the finish line for success and goodness. One more quick example might be what we would call a mystical gospel. This is teaching, and it's out there everywhere, that, that's really centered upon you. It's all about you and your experience with God. It's about the right posture in worship, about figuring out how to be passionate, how to be on fire, how to be excited enough. It's teaching that sees the church and other Christians as existing for your own personal spiritual experience. It's measured by feeling, passion, and fervor. Those are just a few of the ways, a few of the things that we can be looking for that, that tend to elevate human actions, desires, and practices as on par with Christ as essential. The second thing to watch for is this, and this is more implied in our text, and that's to be watching and listening for anything that ties your identity to this world. This isn't as clear. It shows up in our text from last Sunday that I read as our call to worship this morning, when Paul says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age. Jesus came to rescue us, to deliver us from the economies and the power structures and the lowercase k kingdoms of this world. When we are trusting in Christ for our salvation, this world is no longer our home. We are residents of a different kingdom. Our very identity, our very purpose as human beings is redefined. We are now, scripture tells us, ambassadors sent for a season from our true home for a sort of on special assignment, bringing the love and the grace of God in Christ into this dark world. We join Jesus on his mission, doing his work of rescuing and redeeming his creation. When we are in Christ, our hope and our identity is less and less connected with and tied to the affairs of today. And so any teaching that seeks to, to attach your identity to the, for example, political or social 
movements of today is likely false teaching. You may have often heard, for example, that it is our Christian duty and obligation and responsibility to vote. And not only to vote, but to vote in a certain way. To which my initial response is, where does the Bible say that? I must have missed it somewhere. The truth is, it's not a biblical position. It's a philosophical position. It's a political position. And it's perfectly fine for you to feel the conviction for yourself that it would be wrong for you to not participate in our democratic republic in that way. But, but to say that others must participate in a specific way is to go beyond Scripture. Scripture just simply doesn't say that. The United States of America is, in my humble opinion, the greatest nation in the world, but it is, in fact, of this world. The motivations behind this teaching, this obligation, are, are usually driven by a desire for power. It's really a type of Christian nationalism. It's a false gospel that seeks to tie your identity, your assurance, your hope to this evil age from which Christ came to rescue you. The other side of the same coin, there's a progressive Christian nationalism that would equate the true gospel with one in which the measurement of your faith, the assurance of your faith, is whether you work, do enough work toward equity and justice here on earth. That the measure of your Christianity is whether you have worked to set enough people free. And they will say that if you don't vote for these candidates who will overthrow systemic oppression, that you're not really a Christian, that you're not really following Jesus. These same people often argue that Jesus really didn't offer himself for your sin. The idea of substitutionary atonement for sin is offensive. They'll argue that it doesn't really matter what you believe, that all roads lead to God as long as you're trying to be a good person. It's a perversion of the gospel. It inevitably ties your identity to this world from which Christ came to rescue you. That doesn't mean we don't care about this world. Right? We do. When we believe the gospel, when we come to know and believe how much God loved us, we will begin to love the things that he loves. We will begin to care about the things that God cares about, including the well-being of our neighbors, including justice, including the environment as God's creation. When we understand the gospel, we will begin to care for the things that God cares about. But we will see these things as things that we get to do because of how much God has loved us, not as things we have to do in order to be saved, in order to earn his love. We cannot add to the gospel. You will walk out these doors today, and throughout the week you will see thousands of examples of people trying to twist, trying to add to the gospel, and in every single case we lose the gospel. We lose the good news. What else do we see in our text? Third, we see this, that the true gospel must be defended at all costs. What's tricky about this is that those who teach a false gospel will really 
emphasize this. They will present their false gospel as the true gospel and say it must be defended at all costs. But the reality is the true gospel, as Paul has shown us in our text, must be defended against those false gospels. Verse 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. What did Paul do here? He called upon God's wrath against those who pervert the gospel, or those who add to the gospel, those who twist the true gospel. We see here the complete seriousness of maintaining the purity of the gospel. He says, let them be under God's curse. The Greek word is anathema. Let them be damned to hell is essentially what Paul is saying. And he includes himself and even the angels in this. If we or even angels proclaim a gospel that's different from the gospel that we preach, the gospel that Christ gave himself for your sins to rescue you from this evil age, if anybody preaches something that adds to that or that twists that, let them be damned to hell. That might seem like a bit of an overreaction, right? If we don't understand what's at stake here, if we don't fully realize how critical this precise, simple message of the gospel is, Everything hangs on salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. If we lose that, if we lose that simple, precise gospel message, we lose the Christian faith. If we compromise that precise, clear gospel of Christ offered up for your sins to rescue you from the present evil age, we lose everything. The gospel must be defended at all costs. And the greatest threats to the gospel are those things that sound spiritual, that sound religious, that sound good, that sound Christian-ish, but are actually distracting you from finding all of your hope and all of your life and all of your identity in Christ alone. Paul knows that the greatest chance of getting you to walk away from Christ is not to tempt you into utter atheism, but to tempt you into religious idolatry, into turning something in addition to Jesus into your true God. And so he calls down the curse of God. He says, let anyone who preaches another gospel be damned. The fourth and final thought that I want to share today from our text is this, that the gospel is offensive to our human nature. Verse 10 says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. It seems Paul was accused of preaching a gospel which is just too simple, too good to be true, too gracious. Maybe you can hear these accusations you likely have. Isn't this just cheap grace, some people might say? 
Aren't people just going to take advantage of God's grace if it's really that good and that free? You'll hear people say, this is a, this is a slippery slope. If we tell people that they don't have to follow the law of Moses to be saved, won't they just live recklessly? Won't they just do whatever they want? Won't they abuse it? Paul, you're saying that, that you're saying these things, you're preaching these things just in order to please these pagan Gentiles. You're just trying to make the Christian faith more palatable by telling them that they can't do anything to be saved. The reality is that Paul wasn't trying to win the approval of people. He wasn't watering down the Christian faith. He was proclaiming the precise, beautiful, free, life-saving, life-changing gospel. The good news that you can add nothing to what Christ has done for your salvation because Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf is complete, it is finished, it is sufficient. That you must simply receive. This is offensive to our human nature. On one hand, the idea that some might take advantage of the simplicity of God's grace offends pious religious people who have worked really hard to be better. And at the same time, the idea that you are damned by your sin apart from Jesus and, and can't do anything to save yourself is, is offensive to our human nature. We think we can do anything ourselves. The gospel offends all of the things that we like to think about ourselves. As Americans, the gospel offends the DNA of what it means to be American. Think about the nature of grace. The only way to be saved is to take advantage of Jesus. That's the fundamental reality of biblical Christianity, that your only hope, your only shot at salvation is for Jesus to take all of your sin and all of your filth and all of your rebellion and your death and for you to be given, gifted, credited, to be the undeserving recipient of Christ's goodness and perfection. If the Bible is true, that's your only, your only shot, your only chance, your only hope. You can't Work your way in, earn your way in, behave your way in. You can only receive it by incredibly unfair means. That's the gospel. And it offends everything that we like to believe about ourselves. And so you might ask the question, what's, what's left for us to do? And the response of Paul, the response of Jesus... The response of Holy Scripture, the response of the gospel, is quite simple. Nothing. Just believe. Just receive. Just believe that Jesus was offered up for your sin to rescue you from this present evil age. Just believe that he exchanged his perfect life for your sin and that he rose from the grave to ensure that all who believe will live. What do you do? you need something to do, if you feel like it's too good and you have to do something, then try this. Just rest. Rest in 
the gospel. You can't add one thing to improve what Christ has done for you. And so rest in him. Today and tomorrow, rest in the gospel. And my suspicion is that when you rest in Christ, as you rest in this incredibly good news, you you will see your life starting to bear the kind of fruit that you could never actually produce on your own, by your own work or effort. And so we repent of our fickle nature. We repent of our tendency to trust Christ today and go back to trusting that politician or that worldly savior tomorrow. We repent of having our eyes focused on this world instead of on Christ. We repent for doubting the sufficiency and the perfection of what Christ has done for us. And we rest in the gospel. And we watch as God produces what he desires in our lives. Let's pray. Our God, when we hear these words from Galatians, when we hear of Paul's astonishment over how quickly the people were deserting your gospel, our Lord, we can't help but think of ourselves. We can't help but think of how quick we are to bounce from one thing to the next, how our hearts are prone to wander. And so, Lord, we confess our sin. We have sinned against you in thought, in word, and in deed. Your grace to us in Christ is our only hope for life and for eternity. Lord, we confess that we could never improve upon what your son Jesus did for us. So Lord, give us faith to believe your promises. Help us to believe that we cannot add to your gospel. Help us to rest in your work for us. To rest in the fact that what Jesus did on the cross for us is enough. It is sufficient. And we give you praise, glory, and honor for your grace to us. For forgiving our sins. For crediting us with the righteousness of Christ, even though we could never deserve it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.